Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Salovey, and welcome to a special episode of Yale Talk. It's an exciting time on campus as we celebrate the launch of the Tobin Center for Economic Policy, dedicated to addressing a, a need for nonpartisan policy relevant research. Founded in 2018, the center supports Yale's emphasis on using multidisciplinary, evidence-based social science research to solve exigent challenges. Since then, the program has had an incredibly successful inaugural phase. Its research, for example, has already resulted in policy changes and recommendations in healthcare, education, tax reform, environmental economics, and other issues that affect millions of Americans. And in conjunction with the Department of Economics, the center runs one of the largest programs for two-year pre-doctoral fellows in the country. We are dedicating the Tobin Center's new home at 87 Trumbull Street. And the wonderful events Yale hosted as part of our celebrations include a fireside chat with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, which took place on April 3rd. I hope you will enjoy our conversation. Well, thank you for that, and a good afternoon, everyone. It is a real pleasure to be joining you. It's wonderful to see a full house to celebrate one of Yale's newest research enterprises, the Tobin Center, and to welcome back to our campus one of our most eminent alumni. So today, Secretary Yellen and I will discuss one of the driving themes of her economic agenda, modern supply-side economics. So modern supply-side economics uh, underpins the administration's biggest legislative victories. And many believe that modern supply-side economics has vast implications for American policy. So we will try to bring this alive by discussing it in the context of the Tobin Center's research across relevant areas, much of which has informed domestic economic policies. As Secretary Yellen once noted about the center's namesake, her dear friend and mentor, James Tobin, James Tobin encouraged his students to do work that was about something, a work that would not only meet a high intellectual standard, but would improve the well-being of mankind. Of course, the Tobin Center was founded with a similar mandate, a mandate to foster evidence-based cross-disciplinary research that defines and informs the policy debate. Before we delve into a discussion about research and economic policy, I want to go back to the beginning. Madam Secretary, in 1967, September 1967, you arrived at Yale as a graduate student in economics. Can you take us back to that fall and tell us a little bit about what your experience was like? Well, I arrived in September of 1967. I was full of enthusiasm for studying economics and very much attracted to coming to Yale because of the work that Jim Tobin and his colleagues, Bill Brainerd and others, exciting work that they were doing in macroeconomics and international economics. And there were not a lot of women at Yale at the time. I think there were three women in my class, though. But the class quickly grew to be close-knit. We worked on problem centers, problem sets together. We took all of our classes in the buildings that the Tobin Center now unites. We had most of our classes in the Coles Foundation, some in the Economic Growth Center. We studied in the library during the day at Coles. There was an economic study 
in Sterling Library, a room that at the time was dedicated to economic students. And we used to study there in the evening and hang out at the Hall of Graduate Studies. And it was an intensely intellectual and very friendly and collaborative environment. And I didn't take a course with Jim my first year, but I had the pleasure of studying macro with Bill Brainerd, who is a wonderful person, original thinker, and was a close collaborator of Jim's. But it was a difficult time. The Vietnam War was in full swing. There was a good deal of political unrest in the country, and certainly that was reflected on campus. And military deferments for graduate students were eliminated the year that I started graduate school. And so the men in my class were faced with the prospect that they might be drafted. I believe it was 1969, they established a lottery system. Some graduate students at that point were safe and others were greatly threatened. My class had a number of men drop out, either because they were drafted or because they went into teaching or did other things to avoid the draft. And I guess the other thing that's memorable to me about those times is that it was a time when unemployment had fallen to levels that we hadn't seen in decades. I think the unemployment rate in 1967 fell to close to 3.5%, but inflation also built up. And by that time, I think it had reached 4 or 5%, and it would drift yet higher. And so a very active topic of debate was is there a trade-off between unemployment and inflation? Can we address inflation while still maintaining a strong labor market? What are the benefits of a strong labor market? What policies can we use? Might something like wage and price guideposts be helpful? And that was a topic that has occupied the rest of my career. So it was pretty memorable to me. The more things change, the more they remain the same. So you are an early proponent of a goal that is shared by the Tobin Center, which is to advance diversity in the field of economics. And you've been an advocate your entire career for greater diversity. Tobin's predoctoral program has been quite successful when measured on that. It was even cited by The Economist magazine for its efforts. But you said there were a few other women around. Maybe we were the only woman in your class that year who graduated. You're the first woman treasury secretary in American history, I believe. That's fair. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, your signature, along with another woman, is on our currency. And that really uh, suggests some progress. But maybe you'd like to reflect on the progress that's been made over the last 50 years concerning diversity and women's empowerment in economics? Sure. Well, I think women have made a lot of progress. In the Biden administration, more than half the cabinet is women. I go to a weekly lunch of a group we call the core economic team, which is Treasury, CEA, OMB, and the NEC. And at our last lunch, this will change next week, but at our last lunch, all four heads of these agencies were all women, which is certainly a sign, I think, of progress. And as you said, on the currency, so it took a long time to sign the currency. 
It requires not only a confirmed Treasury Secretary, but also a Treasurer who's the second signature. And it took us a very long time to appoint a Treasurer. But in addition to myself, you have another Yale alum by the name of Lynn Malerba, who is the lifetime chief of the Mohegan tribe that's based in Connecticut, and she's heading up Native American affairs at Treasury and New Tribal Office we've set up. And we both signed the currency and had the pleasure of going to Fort Worth and seeing the first bills come off the press and signing them. So that was very exciting, and I think it's a sign of progress. It does contrast with my days at Yale when there were really not a lot of women and I think on the faculty at the time, there was only one woman who was a lecturer. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, since I was looking forward to an academic career, worrying that that wasn't a very good sign. I remember there were nepotism rules at Yale at the time. Several faculty members had wives who had PhDs in economics, and they weren't allowed to serve on the faculty. So things were different. I saw a picture this morning in the Tobin Center of Heidi Hartman, who was a woman, got her PhD in economics. She was a couple years behind me. But at the time that I was at Yale, there was really an awakening of the women's movement. And the women graduate students formed a club and met to discuss women's issues. And they became quite active. And one of the issues that the women decided concerned them was the policy to conduct business at Maury's, which was beloved at Yale, but didn't let women through the front door. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> at the time. This is a long time ago. And I still remember the women decided that they would pick it. They would pick at Maury's. And... Heidi was among them. I was trying to write a thesis and get a job, and so I wasn't out on the picket line, but Heidi was out there. And the women had decided that any male faculty who crossed their picket line to enter Maury's, they would ask the question to that faculty member, are you a racist and a sexist, or are you only a sexist? <laughs> and so Heidi was out there, and who should appear but Jim Tobin. And Heidi was a student of Jim's at the time. And Jim, he was across the street, and he looked like he was contemplating, should I go to Maury's for lunch and meet my lunch date or not? And he decided to go. And poor Heidi had to go up to him and ask him this question. And a couple of days later, Heidi got a long letter from Jim. And in it, he explained why he believed he was neither a racist nor a sexist. And that didn't surprise me. And in it, he said that he absolutely agreed that it was inappropriate and improper for faculty business. I mean, this was where young faculty recruits were taken for lunch, and there were faculty meetings at Maury's. And he agreed that this was an inappropriate thing and that the economics department would no longer do that. And it was a sign, I think, that times were changing. And of course, we've made an enormous amount of progress. But I guess I'd say we're still not quite where we need to be. 
So at the moment, I think about 30% of graduate students in economics are women. That's probably true at Yale and nationally. The American Economic Association did a survey of women, I think around 2019, and asked about satisfaction with economics as a profession. And there was decidedly less satisfaction among women than there was among men, and a feeling that there was discrimination and harassment, both overt and kind of implicit, in ways that really reduce satisfaction and the feeling of being effective. So I think there's still a ways to go, and I think it's important to make progress, both for fairness sake, but also because I think the research that's done and the views that emerge that inform policy, they really do depend on having diversity in the profession. It influences the work that's done, the problems that are chosen. So I think we still have a ways to go. And nationally, I think the issue of female labor force participation, the United States was for a long time in the forefront. We had the highest rate among industrial countries, and that is no longer true. We're actually way way behind. And I think the issue with childcare, which is one of the things that I know the Tobin Center is interested in and the Biden administration is certainly very focused on, that childcare is a necessary component of being able to have women advance and participate. And I think there's a lot to still do on that front. Yeah, a university issue as well. You have been alluding to Jim throughout your comments so far, and so maybe we should focus on James Tobin for just a moment. He was your professor, he was your dissertation advisor. We understand that you have a beautifully crafted set of notes from courses with Professor Tobin that are handed down, disseminated throughout the uh, community of economics students. I wonder if that's even true, or just a fable. So Jim was, as you say, my teacher, and I served as his teaching assistant. He was my dissertation advisor. I decided to come to Yale for graduate school because of Jim. So Jim came to Brown during my senior year, and I went to a seminar that he gave. It was on life cycle savings and balanced growth. And the question that he asked was, is it conceivable that if individuals have no motive for saving other than to finance their retirement, they have no bequest motive, they just want to save, be able to finance retirement, and ideally use up all of their wealth over their lifetime, could you possibly explain why a country like the United States has the magnitude of wealth that it has? And this really depended on demographics, the pace of technological change, other things that when you go from an individual to a population of people who were life cycle savers that would determine wealth. And he presented this analysis that was just beautiful. I mean, I thought the way he used data and the way he integrated data with theory to try to get a sense of whether or not a theory had empirical relevance and could be useful, or whether or not it was just way off and other motives had to be critical drivers, was just beautiful. I really hadn't seen 
this kind of marriage of theory and data so brilliantly executed. And I thought to myself, that is the kind of work that I would like to be able to do. To me, Tobin, he was a brilliant teacher, but he was also an inspiration because he had an incredibly strong sense of social justice. And it came through in everything that he did, this idea that economics should be about something. Economics at the time was becoming very mathematical. And sometimes people joke that papers were really recreational math. And that was a view that Tobin really couldn't stomach. I mean, his view is that this is intimately about social welfare and economics has an important social purpose. And we don't do economics just because it's fun and recreational math. It's meant to better the society of welfare. And by the same token, if you're called to government service as an economist and you have tools that can make a contribution, it's your duty to go. And there was a famous story about Tobin. He was called by Kennedy and asked, would he be willing to serve on the Council of Economic Advisors? And he said, well, you know, I'm an ivory tower economist. And Kennedy said, that's fine, I'm an ivory tower president. <laughs> and he went off and ended up designing a tax cut that was sort of biased toward investment, which is what he thought was both necessary to reduce high unemployment, but also to promote growth and the well-being of future generations. And I mean, that was something that the notion that market systems are important, well-functioning in the core of a good economic system, but that they have problems and high unemployment is one of the key problems. And that the purpose of economics is to address those problems and to improve social welfare. That was really central. He was my thesis advisor. I will say, I think many graduate students found he was very intimidating. And he had a kind of Midwestern style of, when you, you talk to him, he would sometimes leave silences that were uncomfortably long <laughs> that made you feel it's too quiet, I need to say something. And then you talk more, and maybe you knew what you were talking about when you started off, but the more you went on, the more you felt you were becoming incoherent. And I know I wasn't the only person who experienced that. Somebody labeled that the Tobin spiral, but it really motivated you to go off and think harder about what you were doing. But as his TA, he wanted me to take lecture notes. The, the, well, this was true in all the sections of theory, that students should be able to concentrate on understanding what the lecture was about and responding to questions and shouldn't be spending all of their time jotting down notes. So I jotted down the notes and then I went home and I rewrote the notes and Xeroxed them and handed them out to the students. And they did become a kind of underground classic in later years. People told me that they had studied from these notes and they were still floating around. But Tobin was brilliant and he had a lot of the course, which was really the toolkit that every sensible macroeconomist doing anything practical really had in their head, and it's what 
enabled them to contribute to policymaking, that it was a brilliant marriage of his own research based on Keynesian economics and long-run growth and the marriage of the two. And so it was really a beautiful course, and I was privileged to have a chance to write up his thinking about it. And, and in what ways are his ideas influencing you in your current position? So in many different ways. Tobin studied Keynes. He was a student when Keynes wrote The General Theory. And of course, he lived through the Great Depression, which was just a tragedy in which our nation suffered from double-digit employment and the social scarring that it produced and all of the political and social problems around the world that we saw as the consequence of the Great Depression. Avoiding such tragedies was very central to Tobin's values. And reading the general theory, he understood that Keynes had identified a way in which market economies can produce breakdowns like the Great Depression, in which rather than putting to work anybody who has the skills and wants a job, can go for long periods with inadequate demand in the economy, leading to massive waste of human resources and the misery that's associated with it. And he thought it obvious that there were monetary and fiscal policies that could address it. And he used to complain about policymakers at the time who went off to meetings of groups like the G7 that I spend lots of time at and have heard speeches like the ones I think he's referring to in which eminent people would talk about how you had to have fiscal responsibility and, well, these problems of high unemployment, there was nothing that you could do about it. And nothing upset him more than hearing these sort of pious utterances at times that you had mass unemployment and there were easy things to be done about it. This was famous around Yale that he used to say it takes a lot of Harburger triangles to fill an Oaken Gap. An Oaken Gap is the massive social economic losses from high unemployment, whereas Harburger triangles are about the losses due to inefficient allocation of resources. So he was very motivated by that. But his philosophy, he also worried a lot about long-term growth and about fairness across generations. What does one generation owe to the next? He spent a long time thinking about national saving and what is the right level of saving for one generation to worried about its own well-being, but also the well-being of your children. What do we owe our children? And here at Yale, you probably know that he was responsible for devising an endowment policy where really the critical question is, we have these resources. We expect Yale to be here for generations and generations to come. How much is it fair for us to use today versus stashing away to make sure that future generations are taken care of? So those kinds of questions. And I remember when I was beginning to work on climate change at the Council of Economic Advisors, and he came to visit me and we talked about it. 
He was really passionate on the topic of the importance of future generations in addressing it. We still talk about intergenerational neutrality and our endowment spending policies, which were designed by Professor Tobin. It's very true. So after you graduate Yale, you stayed active in the Yale University community. I think when I first met you, you were serving on the Yale Corporation. You sat on the advisory board of our Yale program on financial stability. More recently, you served on the advisory board of the Tobin Center, which has had this incredibly successful inaugural phase. In fact, Tobin-supported research is routinely covered in the national media. I think you've all seen it. It's been cited by Congress, by federal agencies, been cited by the White House. And the center is credited with moving significant policy changes at the federal and state level across a range of areas, from health to education to climate to economic mobility. The center's goal, really, when I think about it, is to reduce the time between research and actual impact on the world. I think Jim Tobin would have liked that as the goal for the center in his name. So. What compelled you to help us out to join the Tobin Center? And as we mark this milestone for the center, what are the different ways that you think the Tobin Center could continue to contribute to the debates on economic policy? Well, I have strong loyalty to Yale, and it's a pleasure to remain involved with an institution that I hold in the highest esteem. And with respect to the Tobin Center, I was thrilled to be asked to serve on the advisory board because I feel very strongly, as Tobin did, that economics should be about something and that it should make a difference to the well-being of our nation and the world and that research directed at important policy questions can be critically important and make a huge difference and that it should be data-driven and nonpartisan. And I think these are really the values that the Tobin Center stands for. And the center has been doing important research. And I think national and international policy will benefit from that kind of data-driven approach that is really focused on real problems. So it's been a pleasure. And I'm very happy to be here to celebrate the opening of the Tobin Center and to see the center have a wonderful new building that really integrates the economics department as well. So that's a thrill. But I also feel passionate about the work of the program on financial stability that Andrew Metric heads. That is a wonderful resource for those who have to deal with financial crises. I've found myself using its resources, even in recent days myself, it's a tremendous asset to the world's financial stability community. Andrew's program and the Tobin Center more generally, it's a huge source of pride for me as president of this institution that we can have that kind of impact on the world. And we can prevent perhaps what we saw in 2008, 2009 in the future. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I want us to turn to modern supply side Economics, your idea that you articulated in January 2022 at a, a seminal speech during the World Economic Forum, you outlined a vision for what a modern supply-side economics could be. So perhaps you could explain to us what you mean by modern supply-side economics and how it's different from traditional supply-side economics and how you came up with this idea. What are its origins? So 
really it's a simple idea. It focuses on strategies that can be used to expand an economy's potential output and its ability to supply goods and services. But it looks for strategies to accomplish that that will not exacerbate inequality, which has risen enormously in the United States in recent decades. Rather, it wants to find strategies that will promote growth while mitigating inequality and also addressing environmental damage and harms that can affect the well-being of future generations. And I would say another focus of it is to improve the economic resilience of an economy so that it's better able to adapt to shocks, to survive shocks. So in a way, it's a strategy that is a pro-growth strategy, but is inclusive and green. I guess I would contrast modern supply-side economics with traditional supply-side economics. The word supply-side economics has typically meant strategies to promote private capital formation, boost investment spending by cutting taxes and deregulating. And I would say that that strategy most recently embodied in the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act really have not been very successful, even at promoting investment spending and growth. And when you think about an economy's potential output and the factors that affect it, well, private capital formation is a factor that affects potential output, but many other things matter. For example, the levels of public investment, public infrastructure, matter to an economy's productivity. The levels of research and development, both public and private, are critical determinants of an economy's potential. Human capital, the education that it provides, starting at early childhood education through community college, universities, workforce development and training, the human capital of the workforce, of the population, is critically important to a country's productivity. And labor supply also makes a difference to potential output. We were talking before about labor force participation and, for example, childcare, the availability of childcare. Women's labor force participation is leveled off and then has started to decline in the United States. Policies that might be involved in boosting labor supply could be relating to childcare or immigration or the earned income tax credit that promote participation. All of this is part of the supply side of the economy. So to me, the word modern supply side economics means a focus on policies that affect things other than just private capital spending but all these other things that influence society's potential output and productivity. And, you know, I think looking at policies, looking at their impact on inequality, traditional supply-side economics boost capital investment. Now, there is research that suggests that that kind of automation 
and investment in labor-saving capital devices actually has served to increase inequality. We have seen in the United States ever-rising differentials in wages across education. And arguably, that kind of investment strategy has exacerbated income inequality. In addition, when you think about the policies that are used to boost private capital investment, if you take something like the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, well, it cut the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, and maybe that had some marginal impact on boosting private investment. Not obvious that it did, but it certainly raised the incomes of the wealthy individuals who received those huge tax cuts. And so it made the tax burden a lot less fair. And modern supply-side economics is focused on tax policies and other policies that would reduce rising inequality, which I think in the United States is leading to social instability. So let's fast forward just a little bit from 2017 to the current administration, the Biden administration's legislative wins have been described as historic generational achievements. So let's talk about them. How do the accomplishments of the Biden administration, how do they adhere to modern supply side principles and what more needs to be done? Well, there have been three pieces of legislation that have recently been signed that I think are historic and will make critical contributions to our economy's productive capacity. One is the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, which is historic investments in infrastructure. The second is the Semiconductor and Chips Act. And the third is the Inflation Reduction Act. So the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act will fix all of the decrepit roads and bridges that we have in the United States. I mean, we've really failed to invest in our public infrastructure. So, I mean, that influences productivity. The returns to those investments, much research suggests, is higher than the returns to private investment if the funds are well, well invested. In addition, another important aspect of infrastructure is the internet. And especially at a time when more work and education is being done that deploys the internet. We read about the pandemic, about families in remote areas without internet, putting their kids in cars and driving to a McDonald's lot where they can get internet access. You know, you can't even do your homework if you don't have internet access. So the infrastructure bill contains the funds really to bring affordable broadband to every family in America, no matter where they're located, which is something I think without that, we would certainly have widening income differentials. And the Semiconductor and Chips Act, in addition to greatly enhancing our capacity to produce semiconductors, where I think our dependence on foreign supply has become a national security risk. In addition to that, 
there is a massive investment in R&D. You know, once upon a time, if you go back to the 1960s, public R&D spending was close to 2% of GDP, and it's fallen to something like a third of that. And if you look at international rankings of countries in terms of R&D spending, the United States has fallen to something like 10th. And so this is really a massive investment in science, technology, R&D that is meant to spur innovation and hopefully will be a game changer for university research and research more generally. And then, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act is our biggest investment in clean energy and the ability to supply the goods that are necessary for our renewables and for electric vehicles. And I believe will put us well along the path to addressing climate change, meeting the president has enunciated a nationally determined contribution of reducing greenhouse gas emissions to 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, and it puts us well on the path to achieving it. So it largely occurs through tax credits. It provides the kind of certainty that businesses need to make long-term investments in renewables and the ability to supply the fundamental goods that go into that. And it will generate and already is generating massive amounts of investment to take advantage of that. So this is three important pieces of legislation that are historic that boost the supply side of our ability to supply goods and services, potential output. And I think reduce our vulnerability to shocks, make our supply chains more secure. But, you know, this is not the end of the agenda. There are other things that are still important to do. And I would say the human capital investments the president would like to see they're in his budget become law, universal early childhood education, free community college, much greater investments in workforce training, apprenticeships and the like, the human capital part of the agenda on the labor supply front, affordable child care, elder care, paid leave, things that would boost labor force participation, a permanent expansion of the earned income tax credit. There's more to do on the supply side, but I think these three bills are very substantial accomplishments. Let's stay with this latter point on the labor supply and the human capital strategy, because it is a component of the modern supply side agenda that has not yet been subject to legislation. So David Wilkinson, who's the executive director of the Tobin Center, he suggests that pursuing a modern supply side agenda in the absence of new resources might do a couple of things. One is to emphasize the use of data and evidence to deploy most effectively billions in current government human capital investments. And two, find and reduce program frictions that impede economic mobility. This is similar to the unblocking agenda for infrastructure and climate, but applied to human capital. So these may be areas where academic economists bring value to policymakers. And in that spirit, the Tobin Center, I think some of you know, is making a series of announcements along these lines. So new research on the connection between childcare and 
workforce participation by John Eric Humphreys and Seth Zimmerman with the state of Connecticut, novel efforts with Georgetown to securely access and unlock the value of earnings data to provide insights on what works and increase the uptake of tax benefits, enhancing state Medicaid data and evidence to better serve recipients. I think that's professors Chema and Dumela and Jacob Wallace and Zach Cooper. Tobin Center is also announcing the launch of a research platform that makes it easier for parents to navigate our fragmented pre-K system, and that's led by Professor Chris Nielsen on the Yale side in partnership with the New Haven Public Schools. And while I'm championing the Tobin Center here, it's also true the center will conduct the largest ever survey of the U.S. child care workforce with a multidisciplinary Yale team and the Buffett Institute. I think all of these projects, which are really in the human capital area, also connect to a Jim Tobin theme concerning equity. And I know that equity is also a major focus of the administration's policy agenda. So it seems that your modern supply-side framework argues that addressing inequity, inequality, can be actually a strategy for macroeconomic growth. And I'm wondering if you might elaborate on that. Well, let me first start by saying that we have an enormous increase in inequality in the United States, really going back to the 1970s. You can see it in wage differentials, education differentials, but also differentials in terms of the success of different places. There are parts of our country that are doing exceptionally well, tend to be on the coasts, and parts of our country that used to be prosperous that are just seeing enormous decline and social problems associated with deaths of despair and drugs. And that's just a huge problem in its own right. And so modern supply-side economics wants to focus on strategies that, at a minimum, don't exacerbate these inequities, but more positively try to address it. And I think, as a strategy, it may be that some of the best investments are in areas that are underserved and directed at people who have been excluded and not had access to adequate investment, whether it's in infrastructure or in physical capital. The infrastructure bill will remove lead from water systems all over the country. And who does that most affect? That affects mainly poor communities where research by Janet Curry and others shown that there are enormous lifetime disadvantages from childhood exposure to lead. But many of the programs involve an element of place-based strategy, of consciously attempting to direct resources to places that are disadvantaged and can benefit from greater investments. This is true in the CHIPS Act, where there'll be new innovation centers that are set up, and many of them will be in communities that have been left out and haven't really experienced much growth. But Many of the jobs that will be created by the legislation I've described, you're already seeing a flourishing of new investment and job creation and good jobs that 
will be available for people who don't have a college education, because that's a huge divide between the wages of those who have a four-year college degree and those who don't. Many of the good jobs will be for people who have a high school education and can benefit from workforce training to fill these good jobs. So there's an important place-based element. And I would say more generally, even going back to the American Rescue Plan, which was the first major piece of legislation to address the pandemic, even there, there was a focus on trying to get resources, capital, to communities that have seen a shortage of it. An important element of that earlier legislation was money to be invested in community development financial institutions and minority depository institutions that work in low-income communities across the country that increase the supply of capital and lending opportunities for businesses to flourish. We have a program called the Small State Small Business Credit Initiative that provides a broader range of equity capital for startup businesses, again, being disproportionately directed at communities that have been less successful. And so if you think that these are areas where there's especially high returns because there's been a deprivation of capital and investment, then these are particularly good ways both to mitigate inequality and promote growth. So going back to your comment about the modern supply-side economics having a pro-environment agenda, let's focus specifically on climate. The Tobin Center is launching a major new program on climate economics as part of Yale's Planetary Solutions Project, which is a signature university-wide initiative. Most of the work will be centered on economic modeling, which is a strength of Yale economics in this area, and it's really needed in climate policy making. So Tobin Faculty Director Steve Berry and Costas Arkalakis are developing new models to assess the carbon impact of biofuels. Ken Gillingham is doing groundbreaking work on EVs and the electric grid. Tobin is announcing this very day a new initiative to support the state of Connecticut's nation-leading work on sustainability. Fifty years ago, our friends James Tobin and Bill Nordhaus wrote a seminal paper recalling for the environment to be included in our measures of economic growth. So with the help of Yale professor Eli Fenichel, and while he was on leave to work at the White House, the president released an executive order to do just this. And several weeks ago at Davos, a Yale alumnus, Secretary John Kerry announced the resulting national strategy that uh, Professor Fenichel helped develop. So today the Tobin Center is announcing that they will bring leaders together to continue to chart a path forward that celebrates all of this work, particularly the realization of Bill Nordhaus and James Tobin's vision. So you've spoken about how modern supply side economics prioritizes growth that is green. I think that was, that was the phrase you used. Can you walk us through that just a little bit more, the economic argument for why climate policy is actually good modern supply side economics and how the Inflation Reduction Act plays into that? Well, I think it's clear that climate change is an existential threat. And Tobin and Nordhaus, as you said, I think I was a graduate student at the time they wrote this famous paper called Is Growth Obsolete? And they distinguished 
between GDP as our common measure of economic output and how you rate a society's success and a proper measure of economic welfare that would subtract, among other things, the environmental harms that that production causes. And of course, he was very worried, and we all should be about not just our own well-being, but that of future generations. And if we don't address climate change in a very meaningful way and in a serious way now, we will leave a planet to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren that is uninhabitable. And it clearly has to be a major priority. It has been of the Biden administration. I'm really pleased by Eli's work that finally, I think there was an earlier effort for our Commerce Department to produce green accounts that modified our GDP statistics to take account of these environmental effects and degradation of our resources. But I guess nothing came of it. And it's wonderful to see that this effort will now be reinvigorated due to the Tobin Center's work. And of course, Yale and the Tobin Center have been very important in doing all the fundamental work to let us understand what the impact of climate change policy will be. The Inflation Reduction Act, as I mentioned, is a very major piece of environmental legislation. It creates enormous incentives to produce and switch to electric vehicles and for the sake of electricity production to become increasingly and eventually totally reliant on renewables. And it has huge incentives to improve our supply chain for when it comes to wind turbines, solar panels, we're tremendously dependent on China. And I think we have learned from the pandemic and more recently when we have seen in Russia's abhorrent war against Ukraine, what happens when countries become too dependent on suppliers that involve geopolitical risk. We do need to shore up our supply chains, and that's another major goal of the legislation. But I think this legislation will have a transformative effect. And this is certainly an area where researchers at the Tobin Center and across the country, we are working hard. Most of the incentives in this legislation take the form of tax credits. And the Treasury Department is responsible for writing all the rules that govern these tax credits. And I will certainly say that help in understanding how best to craft them would be immensely useful. There are a whole set of policy and technical issues that we need to work through to make sure that the incentives in this legislation have the maximum possible effect. And so that kind of partnership would be very, very valuable. I appreciate that. And of course, the environment's another intergenerational challenge of the Tobin variety. In the moments that are remaining, let me turn to our audience for a second. How many of you are students of economics in one way or another? Okay, an awful lot of you, an awful lot of you. And even some of our professors are admitting to still being students of economics, still learning. 
And uh, how many of you could imagine, in your wildest dreams, maybe following in the footsteps of the secretary? Oh, come on. Or <laughs> wanting to follow. Come on. Come on, admit it. See some admit it. That kind of life of service. You're being modest, but some of you, I know, aspire to it. So what are the different ways that you think our students can serve our country and, and the world? Well, I think studying economics as a start is very valuable in its own right. And I think the philosophy of the Tobin Center is people bring to the decisions that they make a data-driven approach that's nonpartisan and is seeking to make the world a better place is an extremely useful and valuable perspective in all of the decisions we make about economic matters. But, you know, research is very important. It plays a critical role in informing policy. So the work of centers like the Tobin Center and economic research more generally is critically important at the end of the day to good policy. Tobin, as I said, felt very strongly that if you're called to serve, the answer should be yes. And I would also say for people who choose to work in academia and to do research, to spend some time in policy institutions. If the call comes, please say yes, or please pick up the phone and call and volunteer. And I think what you'll find is that government is really filled with very strongly motivated people who are really trying to do their best to make a difference. An enormous asset of our government is the dedicated and talented and professional people who work in it. And seeing that is very motivating in its own right. And working on real problems that policymakers face and understanding what they are. Even if you return to academia, I think you'll find that the research that you do will be changed and motivated by the experience of working in a policy organization. But I think that's an experience that is very worth having. And I would encourage students who are getting degrees in economics to certainly consider service in the government. There are many parts of the government that use economic expertise greatly benefit from it. And I will tell you that it is extremely satisfying and important work. It's a phenomenally great to hear. And as you all know, service is a hallmark of Yale-educated individuals. So uh, we heard a lot today about modern supply-side economics and how rich a theme that is for thinking in new ways about economic policymaking. And you've also heard how the Tobin Center will support faculty who are executing research on key issues of supply. But it is also the case that the Tobin Center will launch an initiative that focuses on modern supply-side economics as a point of view, as a matter of study. And we think that's the first such initiative of its kind by a major university economic center. It will include a speaker series of notable policymakers across the policy spectrum on this theme of modern supply side and various connected uh, issues. So uh, I encourage all of you to stay tuned. We'll be announcing 
all of that. If you want a uh, preview of coming attractions, the digital home of the Tobin Center is tobin.yale.edu. Perhaps unsurprisingly, tobin.yale.edu. And we encourage you to check it out. Secretary Yellen, I have to thank you so much for coming back to campus. You visit us any number of times. You've served this institution, and we are very grateful to you. You've been such a key member of the Yale family, and you personify James Tobin, the tradition of civic leadership and economics. And it's a wonderful legacy. It's a legacy we're celebrating today, but we especially celebrate it through you. Thank you, Secretary. Thank Yale. you so thank much, Peter. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. To friends and members of the Yale community, thank you for listening to my fireside chat with Secretary Yellen, held in celebration of the Tobin Center's recent launch. Until our next conversation, best wishes, and take care. The theme music, Butterflies and Bees, is composed by Yale Professor of Music and Director of University Bands, Thomas C. Duffy, and is performed by the Yale Concert Band.